You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Lisa Keith, editor in chief of Meeting Place and Alt Meat. Welcome to this month's Meeting Pod episode dedicated to the meat alternatives market. Tony Hunter is an Australia-based food futurist. He digs into the places where food intersects with technology. Then, he works up scenarios on how those two fields will affect each other and where the food industry is likely to go in the next one, three, five, ten or more years. Even this experienced food industry observer says he's never seen anything like the way the alt-proteins market has developed in the last three years. And he believes a rocket-fueled future lies ahead for the sector. Tony talked about his ideas with Alt-Meat contributing editor Chris Scott. Hi, Tony. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing so far so good. (laughs) Good to hear. As they say, Chris, every day above ground is a good day. Absolutely. Well, let me ask the main question. Out of all the factors that are involved in in food, manufacturing, etc., what one development, new business, new ingredients, new processes and regulations, do you think would do the most to move the alternative meat industry in all of its forms forward? I think the biggest impact is going to be through the use of artificial intelligence, AI. I think that is going to have the most effect on the future of alternative proteins for so many reasons. There's a lot of companies around now who are using AI in their development. We've got companies like Notco out of Chile, and they use their Giuseppe proprietary AI to formulate their plant-based milk, which includes, wait for it, pineapple and cabbage flavors. Wow. Now, that's the advantage of AI. It can consider things beyond the human mind. So no one in the lab would go, what should I consider for plant-based milk? I know, let me see if cabbage and pineapple work. No, but Giuseppe identified those compounds, identified they would make the contribution and included them in the product. So it can look at and consider a number of formulations, permutations and combinations inconceivable to the human mind. So it's opening up vast areas of ingredients and formulations that the human mind simply can't cope with. And so I see that side of the alternative proteins. And then we have also, if you look at the long-term effect of AI on general nutrition and so on, what we're finding is a lot of AI being used now in what people are calling either precision nutrition or even precision medicine. And how our food affects us. So we can look at how alternative protein product will affect human nutrition by using things like AI and machine learning, particularly when coupled with sensors. We're seeing huge advances in sensor technology. We've got tattoo sensors coming up in the next five or 10 years. You'll have a dermal tattoo sensor that will detect your glucose, your lactate, et cetera, et cetera, feed it back to your smart device, analyzed by an AI, to tell you how your food is affecting you. So I think overall on alternative proteins and in terms of the overall impact on human nutrition, AI really, really is the way to go. And we have a look at another side of things too. 
specific to alternative proteins, we've got a company called Benson Hill. Now, Benson Hill are making high-protein soybeans because previously what companies did, and I talked to the head of R&D for Impossible Foods back in 2018, was the problem was I've got all these ingredients were never meant to make an alternative protein product, but I've just got them. That's what I've got to use. And now, only four years on, we've got people falling all over themselves to formulate products specifically and ingredients specifically for use in plant-based foods. But now we're finding this whole range of alternative protein products that we can use. Now, Benson Hill have used AI and genomics to select for a high-protein soy, which is meant primarily for use in alternative protein products. And the oils and other things are the byproducts. They're the other products. But by doing this, what they can do is they can reduce the amount of processing required to concentrate the protein fraction. So we hear a lot about ultra-processed foods and these plant-based products are so heavily processed, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the debate's still open about amount of processing versus health, but that's probably another another conversation. Exactly. Uh, but actually what it's doing is addressing that concern that's risen over the last few years as to how processed plant-based products are. So they can make a protein with equivalent to an isolate, which requires a lot of processing, where theirs only requires the same processing as a concentrate, which means there's a lot less processing involved. So they're starting to address those concerns. And I think those that look at plant-based or the alternative protein products and say, oh, they're heavily processed, you can forget them. They forget how quickly technology moves. I mean, I was in the States in San Francisco in 2018, and my marketing survey for consumers was my Uber drivers. Now, in San Francisco, eight Uber drivers, one had maybe heard of plant-based products but wasn't sure. I'm pretty sure you took an Uber in San Francisco in Silicon Valley Territory. They'd know the names of the companies, Impossible Foods, right. Beyond, etc. Right. It's out there now. But that's how quickly this alternative protein ecosystem has moved. And that's why AI, for me, is one of the great accelerator technologies that partners with alternative proteins to drive them forward at an ever-increasing rate, at that exponential change. Because in my view, food is now technology. So everywhere you look, there's technology making food. There always has been to some extent, but it's been a bit under the radar, but it's now becoming more and more obvious and more and more widespread. And as we know, technologies advance exponentially. So I call that exponential. Food is now exponential. And that rapid rate of change can be driven by AI and machine learning. Wow. Okay, I got it. <laughs> to follow up exactly on that track, there are still some hurdles, even with the use of effective AI protocols and standards relative to the marketing end, the cultural end, mm -hmm. the adjustment in the down to mouthfeel and taste. Are there aspects of AI that can address some of those concerns yeah. among yeah. the public? Absolutely. Well, I can address the concerns from a product point of view, because as we know, last year, the alternative protein products basically plateaued in the US. Now, they continue to go very strongly in Europe. So there are regional differences. My view is that it's probably primarily due to 
saturation of the people that want to try it and simply the fact that most products do not taste that good. That's it. You know, if you put them straight up, there are very few products that I think meet the mark of having the same flavor and texture as conventional animal products. And there are two ways to go from there. One is concentrate on making your products mimic meat as much as possible so consumers get the flavor and texture experience they want. AI will be massively important in doing that. The other one is forget meat. Let's just make a really great tasting product that tastes nothing like meat. Because why is the gold standard a beef hamburger? Nothing says, no law written that says a beef hamburger is the best tasting product you will ever taste. No, it's the best tasting product we know at the moment. Right. There's nothing to say that alternative protein products can't taste even better and appeal even more to consumers than conventional meat. It's not a barrier. It's not the taste of meat is not a barrier. It's just a benchmark. And plant-based and alternative protein products are slowly creeping up on that benchmark. Who's to say they have to stop when they get there? In 20 years' time, it may be, no, no, the best-tasting product's not conventional meat. It's product X over here from Acme Corp. That is the best-tasting product in the world that you'll ever taste. Why not? There's no reason. And I think the AI is such an overarching impact on every part of that chain, everything from, as we talked about, the raw material, soy protein, through to formulation, through to texture, taste, and everything else, that its ability to help companies overcome those barriers, I don't think should be underestimated at all. I think it's so uh, we're going to see more and more of this come in over the next, even the next five years, I think we'll see a huge increase in the use of AI by companies all along the value chain. That was my next question. What would you contend would be the futurist view in terms of timing? What's it going to take to get those programs out there to talk to real consumers? My view is that we'll come to taste parity around 2025, 26 is when we'll see taste parity. And that sounds like a short period of time. But as I say, if we're in the exponential phase, if we've hit the inflection point and we're seeing all the major flavor companies, Furminish, IFF, Givardin, Simrise, all have flavor systems for mimicking conventional products Kerry Ingredients is doing the same thing. So we're seeing more and more horsepower come in. Every time a major company comes in, there's a step change in resources. They don't just come in and put someone on it part-time for a day, a week. They have like, okay, we've got 10 people. 10% of all of Nestle's R&D is on plant-based products. Biggest food company in the world. Right. When they come in, the horsepower that comes in, when Merck came in to the cultivated meat, the cell-based meat, massive increase in resources coming into the space. So every time we see these big companies coming in, you get this huge step change in resources, and that's what drives that exponential growth is the exponential addition of resources, time, money, and particularly expertise in driving these products forward. So that's why I think that 2025 is realistic as a taste parity. And where we go from there, as I say, then the gloves are off. Then it's like, well, how much better can these products get to appeal to the consumer? Because in the end, if it doesn't taste any good, there's only a relatively small amount of consumers that will eat it because it's good for them, even though it doesn't taste that good. 
And do you think that that aspect for meat, alternative meat products, is improving on that scale within that time frame? Yes, absolutely. As I say, I've been keeping my eyes on the space for about the last five years. I've seen massive change. Been in the food industry for over 30 years. Chris, I've never seen anything like the change we've seen in the last few years. It's just been phenomenal. I've never seen an ecosystem move as fast. The number of companies involved, the investment involved, the dollar, everything going into this just continues to accelerate. So I think that, yeah, it is realistic in that time frame because of the amount of resources going into it. What do you think it's going to take to adjust those kinds of, this is what we're used to, we're not going to make any changes despite this improvement in sustainability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that the marketers are going to use? But I think that to have maximum impact is going to take generational change. If I look long term, people talk about Gen Z or Gen Z, as we say over here, and they look at those and I go, no, no, no. You need to look at Gen Alpha, which is a generation after Gen Z. So from born 2010 onwards, by 2030, they're in their late teens and 20. By 2040, We've got in there this huge amount of people. They will be the largest generation on the planet will be Gen Alpha by 2040. So, you know, if you look at that and you go, it's their values and what they do that will drive the future of food. The boomers literally dying out. They're the Gen Y, Gen Z, but Gen Alpha and Gen Z, they're the ones that are going to drive it. And two things Research shows that they are far more likely to accept technology in their food than previous generations because people say that Gen Z and Gen Alpha are digital natives. I say yes, but more than that, they are technology natives. They've grown up with private corporations shooting rockets into space. That was reserved for the richest sovereign nations in the world 30 and 40 years ago. Now anyone with a lazy billion or two or 10 can send a rocket up into space. And people don't realize how much technology is in their food. My favorite story is I ask people when I speak, who likes cheese? Put their hands up. Basically 100% of the room. So, okay, um, let me tell you something. Back in 1990, our friends at Pfizer put the gene for an enzyme called chymosin into a microorganism. And that chymosin is what separates the curds and the whey to make cheese. And they make chymosin, and that's been made since 1990 using a genetically modified organism. If you have eaten hard cheese in an industrialized country, 80 to 90% of all your hard cheeses are made using the product of a genetically modified organism. And you've been eating it for 30 years. I then say, put your hand up if you're going to stop eating cheese. I haven't found anyone, Chris, not one person, face-to-face, audience of 1,500 people. Who's going to stop? No one, because the technology has a benefit. The benefit might just be I get to eat cheese, (laughs) or it could be sustainability. It could be anything else. But if consumers see a benefit in that technology to themselves in particular, then they are likely to accept that technology, whether it's in their food or anything else. Another one is amylase, an enzyme used to make bread. Made using genetically modified organisms. Has been for decades in the bread. So between bread and cheese, 
you're eating stuff made with the product of a genetically modified organism. They're not GMO themselves. They filter out all the DNA. But, you know, so people, you've been doing this for decades. You're okay. You haven't died yet. If there were major problems with the chymosin to make cheese, I think we'd know about it by now. After 30 years of hundreds of millions, billions of people eating cheese, I think we'd have found the problem. What do you think it's going to take for, let's say, a company the size of Nestle and a couple of others that are working on plant-based meat substitutes? What do you think it's going to take for them to reach the kind of scale they need to to justify the R&D, the other types of development costs, et cetera, that they've already incurred? And will they be able to do that within a reasonable amount of time? I think that we've just stepped back just one minute and look at the conventional meat industry. They've had over 100 years to optimize their process mm-hmm. and to develop their market. We're talking about a market that has only really seriously been around for maybe four years, three years, something like that. And the biggest driver, as we know, for most things is scale. Right. Meat industry has the scale that dwarfs anything in the alternative protein space. So as we get greater and greater, greater scale, then that is going to help drive prices down. And the other interesting one is going to be what happens with feed prices, particularly with the Ukraine crisis and so on, because the feed ratios for things like beef and pork in particular are quite high. So, yes, your plant-based product will go up by this amount, but maybe pork and beef will go up by that amount because the feed conversion ratio is so much higher. So I think that that's going to – I think the answer is scale. And if we have cost parity, price parity, and flavor parity, that's when you'll see a real change when people can go in and say, look, I've got a choice of buying this or buying that, and this has got some sustainability credentials, this has got some GHG credentials, this actually meets some of my other requirements as a consumer, as well as tasting great and being cost competitive, then that's what's going to drive continuous uptake. I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see things level off a little bit this year again, but I think that as we get those advances in the technologies and price, and again, this Benson Hill one, if you need less processing, it's a less costly ingredient, which drives down the price of the end product. So all these components coming in, I think will help drive down the cost. We're seeing some cost parity at the moment. If you look across at the Netherlands, ProVeg did some work over there, and they show that it's actually roughly cost parity with conventional meat at the moment because the price rise in conventional meat. So we're seeing cost parity there, and we're seeing other companies come up with patented production processes that sell, they reduce the cost of production through automation and other machine and equipment technologies that will give them price parity in the next year or two. So, you know, we could see some price parity in some segments in the next couple of years. And the interesting one is going to be the whole muscle steak-like products. Now, steak, of course, when you're trying to compete against hamburger meat down here in price, compete against steak, it's up here. You can have a much, much higher fixed cost base and still undercut conventional products, again, with taste and texture. There's a company called Redefine Meat out of Israel, and they sell in the 
Marco Pierre White's restaurants in the UK, Mr. White's, he serves their product in his high-end restaurant, their lamb and beef versions. So there are products out there that are very, very close and you know, chefs are prepared to get behind them. So I think we're a lot closer maybe than we think we are to, to price parity and taste parity. And if we look forward to even 2040 with 9 billion people and 10 billion people by 2050, there's not enough arable land or fresh right. water on the planet to feed everyone like you and I will eat today. It's not going to happen. So we need to find alternative methods of producing food, particularly protein and other ingredients, if the rest of the developing world is going to eat as well as we do. And we may choose in places like the US and Australia to stick with conventional animal agriculture. Who knows, maybe, at least for the, you know, the near future. But some of these countries don't have to. They can simply choose to leapfrog our protein technologies <clears throat> Reimagine the global food system with less connections in it. So instead of shipping food all around the world, grow more locally and use the latest technology used to reimagine the food system using alternative proteins because protein, as we know, is so important for human health. We have to have protein. But what can we do with these new technologies to get away from that tyranny of arable land and fresh water, which some countries which is just never going to have. Technology has already done so much for the food sector, and Tony Hunter's vision of the future is even more enticing. Our thanks to Tony for sharing his thoughts with us today. You can read more on the future of alt proteins on our website at alt-meat.net. Registration is free. You can also go there to subscribe to our newsletter and print magazine dedicated to the business of alternative meats. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.